Very good. Now, um, Sidi Yusuf's just about to start reading. If people can't hear him, then please uh, let me know in the chat or something, but hopefully you can. This point notwithstanding, it is also important in order to bring the question of Nafs al-Amr into sharper relief that it be distinguished from another form of truth justification. The question of ontological justification of the sciences, Nafs al-Amr, here broadly speaking, our correspondence theory, is distinct from that of the internal justification of the sciences in modern parlance, i.e. the foundationalist theory. Although intimately intertwined and both centrally important to a full account of truth, these are distinct metaphysical themes. The classical foundationalist theory in Islamic philosophy grounds inferential speculative, speculative theoretical nothery propositions, which are not analytically self-evident, but require syllogistic or other forms of proof, firmly in necessary, daruri, and self-evident bedihi propositions. The epistemic roots of the mountain to which the buildup of, of propositions can be traced and which guarantee their self-coherent truth. Yet even this is not enough for a full account of truth. The brute phenomenological fact of this form of just foundationalist justification, the fact that we can, the fact that we encounter it experientially, does not account for its being, nor provide it with more than self-referential truth validity. That is, it cannot assure us beyond a shadow of a doubt that first principles correspond to nafs al-amr. The proximate locus of self-evident propositions and innate concepts is the mind of, of the individual subject. But as we will hear from a number of prominent Islamic philosophers in the course of this paper, the fact of dwelling in the inner mind is no guarantee of truth. For otherwise, obviously false propositions, like every man is an, every animal is a man, or one plus two equals two, would have to be true just because we can think them. For example, the principle, the principles, nothing, <clears throat> nothing comes from nothing, and it is impossible that to think. Be, both be and not be in exactly the same manner and conditions seem true to us, indeed the basis of many other truths. Yet if the only evidence we have for this, for this is the fact that we encounter such principles in our internal landscape and cannot help but assent to them, we are no wise justified in claiming that there is a strictly ontological justification, something about the nature of being and the world for believing them to be true, unless we are to acknowledge to acknowledge that they must correspond to something beyond themselves, which can account for that appearance and that, that encounter. That is, for anything, even something as fundamental as the logical principle of non-contradiction, to be ontologically and not merely phenomenologically valid, it must correspond to something beyond its appearances, something rooted in the nature of being itself, that can account for and validate its truth within the particular logical contexts in which it appears. Since these fundamental principles are intelligible entities, which do not have individual reference in experimental particulars, the next question that must, must be asked is, what is the ultimate ontological status of intelligible entities? In some sense, whether entirely, con entirely consciously or not, we, experience, we certainly experience such intelligible entities, the principle of non-contradiction, the figures of the syllogism, the pure concepts of identity, necessity, possibility, unity, multiplicity, abstract math mathematical entities, and so on. Ordinary, ordinary rational cognition cannot operate without them. Can we stop there? 
Oh no, no, actually, could, uh, I'm so sorry. Could, could we could we not stop there? Because uh, could we go up to that is what independent experimental feature, mode or realm of existence? Moreover, we all bear witness to their utility and indeed its indispensability throughout the diverse branches of human knowledge. But do their particularized instances in the loci of the mind and the same physical physical world external to the mind constitute the ultimate guarantors of the suprasubjective reality? If not, whence do they come, and in what form do they ultimately subsist? That is, what independent, extramental feature, mode, or realm of existence does our knowledge itself correspond to, mm -hmm. including, all, uh, the, including all the cognitive and representational apparatuses from which it is inseparable? Thank you very much. So, uh, traditional philosophy and theology, whether it's Christian or, or Muslim or in whatever tradition it happens to be prior to modernity, um, was almost always foundationalist and some of the very few exceptions to that were various forms of traditional, uh, sorry, well, I mean traditional, um, there forms of ancient uh, skepticism, materialism, whether, there's a couple more people that come in here, uh, whether, that's Democritus, or it was Lucretius, or it was the Stoics. Um, the Stoics are a little bit more of a complicated case, but they are ultimately materialists with a, with a few funny immaterial seeming things tacked on. And without wanting to go into that now, now but one might say that those weren't foundationalist philosophies, but the important thing is that the, the foundationalist philosophies, um, they trumped those other philosophies. They were basically seen to have refuted those philosophies, to have rendered those philosophies untenable. Um, and so Plato, broadly, his philosophy is a found, I mean, this is very, very broad, but it's broadly a foundationalist philosophy. Aristotle, broadly a foundationalist philosophy. Um, um, and this is, was seen to have, have triumphed in the Neoplatonic period, for example. This was something which had, um, was, was normative standard philosophy, science. I mean, this was, uh, the, the, the other approaches were not really tenable. Same thing in the European Middle Ages. Um, and the same thing in the Islamic world. Now, 
the broadly foundationalist philosophies are rooted in um, posterior analytics one three where aristotle talks about he uh, rules out the possibly the possibility of an infinite regress in our knowledge so what's an infinite regress is basically to social so what that means is that if our knowledge always had to be justified at every conceivable step then we would have a, a an impossible infinite re regress and we wouldn't ultimately be able to root any uh, of our um, knowledge at all because whenever you think you'd got to the starting point you would actually find that there was another thing which uh, was prior and then there was another thing that was prior and then when you get to that thing there's another thing that's prior and then wherever you go there's always, just like you can always add one more number on but the opposite way around so um an infinite regress in um justification um so you know why do i believe that we have a uh, just something off the top of my head so why do i believe that we have a meeting here at 6 15 pm well it's because i remember the um the uh flyer that i made about it which i sent around and why did the flyer say that as well because i'd agreed with everything everyone when i sent an email and we'd negotiated the time and then why did i believe that that was the case well because I ultimately had an, an inward experience of making that time and a sense experience in some sense of agreeing it with others. But then that's just a very trivial and kind of linear form of justification. That's not a question about the ultimate ground of our knowledge, but every single thing and why is my sense experience ultimately something which is a self-evident form of justification? Well, because in our tradition, sense experience is a foundation, it's primary, it's, uh, it's necessary. As in, I can't consistently doubt that I'm seeing these colors at the moment. That's not a question of, are they, um, really a hallucination or something like that. Just, I can't consistently doubt that I'm experiencing them. That the question of whether they're a hallucination or could I be asleep or something, that's a completely different question. Uh, but the question, the operative question when we talk about are they lorori is uh, can I consistently doubt the experience? And I can't consistently doubt the experience um, that I'm having. Can I doubt my ontological interpretation of what it is yes but i can i but then that's when things like the principle of non-contradiction would enter and rational principles which would enable me to determine the ontological status of the experience that i'm having um and so foundationalism can take many forms but ultimately what it means is that um our you might say that our composite, our complex sense experiences are reducible to simple sense experiences and our complex propositions and chains of reasoning are reducible to self-evident things. 
Um, so, you know, ultimately our saying God exists, there is a transcendent ground uh, of being, there is one transcendent ground of being who is the source, the transcendent source of all flux, of all change, of all finite being. Ultimately, in terms of the, um, the application of our uh, the, 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 the cognitive structures, the st structures of our cognitive apparatus to the matter of the world, matter in the logical sense, um, uh, ultimately, uh, the principle of non-contradiction applied to that data yields the fact that God exists. You can, if you wanted to, if you take the conclusion God exists, and you wanted to take that all the way back to first principles, then a self-evident principle, the principle of non-contradiction, would be something that regulates your results at every step of the way. Um, so, and this is something you'll find in very basic in our Kalam tradition, Seda Shalifa Jorjani, whoever happens to be, exactly the same principle of the posterior analytics, which is that, um, uh, what's it? Kul alum al nazariya tastanidu ila al alum al varuriya. You know, in order to avo avoid to sell sort of, I, I, I can't think of a particular about it, but it's something like that, that type of thing. You know, all kull al ulum al nazariya tastanidu ila al ulum al daruriya, because otherwise you would have a to sell sort of situation. You have to have an absolute starting point. So when you look at the beginning of Kalam books called Ithbat al ulum al daruriya, that's what you. Um, uh, we'll find is the kind of fundamental basic principle. Now, this is often the, the fact that our starting points in knowledge are self-evident, principle of identity, principle of non-contradiction, um, the structures of uh, concomitants, of lazum, of entailment, all of the kinds of, they're all things which we can't prove, we just find ourselves equipped with, we can't consistently doubt. Why can't we consistently doubt it? Because whenever you try to define being, you or, or the elements you're using is uh, already necessarily have being. Whenever you try to define the one, the things which you're using are already necessarily unities. Um, you know, some people say knowledge is also self-evident. Some people say various uh, shape is self-evident, various different things. Um, you know, if you say being is the starting point of extramental athar, for example, is the mabda of al-athar al-kharjiya. Well, does the mabda have being? Yes. Does the athar have being? Yes. Does kharjiya have being? Yes. They all have being. You So you can't define it. The the The... The definition has to be better known than the thing you're trying to define. It's one of the basic principles of definition. So this is basically what foundationalism means, uh, very basically. 
But the point is, is this what this book is about? It's not. Um, a, a, a brilliant uh, justification of foundationalism is to be found here. The book obviously does many other things, but, um, but, but it's to be found here. This is not the question. This is about a theory of truth in the Nafs al-Amr book. And it's more or less defending a correspondence theory of truth. So it's important to distinguish those two. But what unites both of the approaches is that the foundation that, that uh, both Dr. Kareem uh, and I, in my little book, are trying to go beyond just appealing to self-evidence because there is a problem there which it has been exacerbated by the modern context um, and, and methodological skepticism, which is, well, we happen to be equipped with this way of looking at the world. But why does that mean? Why should, why, why should we believe? Or indeed, we may have reasons to believe, but can we be certain that the way we happen to be equipped, the, the structures we have naturally for looking at the world in our cognitive apparatuses actually match on to how the world really is? How do we know? that we are not imposing those structures onto the world. Now, this is not a, this is not simply a kind of Kantian uh, difficulty that we are intimidated by and then have to deal with. Um, I mean, you find, intimations of this in someone like Sadrajil Al-Khunami when he's actually critiquing reason. And he has a way around it, which is beautiful, which doesn't shut off the possibility of metaphysical knowledge. Whereas Kant, because of all sorts of things which are perhaps in his intellectual background, which have led him to think like that, um, is not able to avoid shutting off the uh, route to metaphysical knowledge. So basically, the, the difference is here, instead of just um, presuming a foundation list that, that, that self-evidence alone is an adequate foundation, what we want to ask is, what, it, what is it about the way being is itself, the way the world itself is, and but world is kullu masi wallah. What is it about reality which means that these concepts, these apparatuses, these so called abstract entities by which we cognize the world actually describe the things as they are, they, 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 they're actually rooted in things as they are, and somehow simultaneously in a single kind of effusion, the, world, the, the being of the world and the intelligibility of the world, which presupposes 
the existence of knowers, um, knowing the world, is all part of one effusion. It's not, it's not uh, uh, two separate orders of being. There's no split in reality. It's Sorry, not, mommy, I'm, I'm part of a, I have a conference. It's not, it's not that the, uh, the world um, uh, was, was, was uh, created out of, you know, let's say, um, this kind of prime matter, this chaos of prime matter, and then there was this evolution, and that was, it was just left like that, and, you know, stuff like that, but in this thought experiment, um, whoever created it is then uh, doesn't know about what's going to happen. Then the process of evolution happens. And then, oh, you know, a few billion years later, suddenly these minds sprout out <laughs> and start um, looking at the world. Then you have a real problem because the structures by which they know the world weren't really rooted in the way the world really is. It was just this stuff, this matter stuff. And then, you know, uh, what they say, you know, what they say is that, that consciousness was an epiphenomenon. It was like a, they call it an emergent property, right? Now, is that even a coherent point of view? I mean, I think also what is different about our approach possibly um, is that um, we don't seek as so many modern Kalam polemics do, and we, I don't think that we seek to be polemical at all, but we don't, we don't want to meet that kind of fundamentally unintelligible modern view on its own terms, because when you do that, you're accepting that that's a coherent point of view. So we're not you know, refusing this person, refusing that person, while accepting you know, this whole shelf of, of premises in these battle arguments, but rather it represents a, a totally unintelligible way of looking at the world. Why is that? Just to, to take that one particular example. I seem to have a... Something in the chat here. Yeah, we'll we'll have time to discuss these things, Jad. Uh, what is it that um, uh, when the the evolutionist makes such claims about a, a fundamentally blind, brutish chaos just sitting there for billions of years and kind of you know having these kind of, you know, later on having lots of random mutations and just fundamentally being blind and not conscious and, and a bit brutish um, and, and purely material. Uh, why on earth would the evolutionist then think that this emergent consciousness, which is rooted in nothing in what is really there, would then be able to turn around suddenly after billion of years, pop, it pops into existence after all these serendipitous kind of uh, things happening and mutations and say, oh, 
I can clearly discern the unfolding of evolution in this, this cosmic uh, chaos. Why on earth would they have any grounds for believing that anything that those intellects produced by blind chaos say corresponds to anything in reality? And, and this, of course, is, is not an argument that I made up. I mean, this is a very strong challenge uh, to evolution that has been made, and in fact made, made the strong evolutionists very, very nervous indeed. Um, it's an interesting thing to look into, but, um, but, but fundamentally, rather than invoking self-evidence as our ultimate and adequate justification, we are trying to ask, what is it about the nature of reality, which means that we have a world where being and knowing are intimately intertwined, can't really be separated, and that gives rise to these knowing subjects who purport to know the world through these cognitive apparatus that also arise out of being just as much as anything else, or even possibly, perhaps, those intelligible entities are actually prior to what we call the material. So, can we go on, Maulana? Knowledge, after all, knowledge of something existing in reality. Try to shout, Harry. I know it's against your nature, but forgive me. Knowledge, after all, is knowledge of something existing in reality. If reality is no more than the very phenomenon of perception itself, in itself, whence our distinction between true and false propositions? If the contents of our mind are reality itself, we have once again awoken in the nightmare of a solipsistic, ide of solipsistic idealism. We have no control over the intelligible features of our objects of knowledge and yet no way to see past our modes of knowing them to any extra mental realm that might have given, given rise to them. There are a few truths which pro promptly re rescue us from these skeptical thoughts. One is that our knowledge in its particular modality is obviously contingent with respect to its particular modus, because the specifically human mode of knowing did not have to be the way it is. This very possibility provides strong evidence that knowledge itself as it is in its specifically human form, arises from an extramental, intelligible reality that co contains more possibilities of knowing and known than those manifest in the particular structure of the human mind. Moreover, and closely related uh, human knowledge is contingent, which is to say that we are obviously not the efficient causes of our own knowledge. This is shown by the fact that our experience of knowledge is evidently primarily, primarily effective, in fairly rather than active, fairly that is one of being acted upon rather than doing. As human beings, we are, as it were, forced to know. In the broadest sense of know, we are unable to choose not to do so. Consequently, no, human, no single human being in the sheer brute fact of the rational nature of his identity or individual nature could possibly ever account for the universal phenomenon of knowledge itself, along with, it, with his very being. It has been caused by something outside of himself and made to become individuated in each member of his species including presently non-existent possible future members of the species in a unique manner in each case. Our knowledge then, if it is true, must plainly proceed from a realm of or reality outside of itself. In other words, one that is extramental, 
one capable of causing the universal phenomenon of knowledge to become manifest in each individual member of the human species. In this study, within the context of the indigenous resources of Islamic philosophy, we will try to ascertain whether it is possible, justifiably, to attempt to identify the nature of this realm, nafsul amr, or things as they as they are, without the in themselves. Sorry? Without in themselves. It's just one place that we fail to take out in themselves. I believe the whole rest of the book is things as they are. Things as they are. The mere exploration of this most fundamental of questions we will, we contend, be instrumental in suggesting the outlines of any future theological system able to serve the genuine and faithful continuation, continuation of a higher Sunni Kalam, a type of Kalam that is ser today seriously and literally at risk of extinction. As we have said, there exist a number of approaches to dealing with Nafsul Amr. Perhaps the most distinctive aspect of this study is that it hopes to be open to the full scope of the sources of knowledge that the ulama drew upon in their formulations of various theories of Nafsul Amr, even though some of these sources may feel unfamiliar or seem incredible to many who have grown up surrounded by the general epistemological assumptions that characterize contemporary fashion. That is, we hope to be open to the results of the scholar sages who acknowledge that underlying and, and informing the discursive intellect, there is always the receptive intellect, intellects have a limit at which, they, at which they must come to a halt insofar as they are discursive, not insofar as they are receptive. Can we start there? There's never words of Sheikh Al-Akbar. Um, Oh yeah, I see what you mean. It says in themselves as well there. Yeah, I mean, this is not a, it's not a huge issue. I mean, the important thing is that it says things as they are. If you add on in themselves, then it's kind of, it's okay. I mean, you know, Nafs al-Amr is defined as al-Amr fi haddi dhatihi. It is a bit like in themselves. So, but it's just that when you're talking about the ultimate level of Nafs al-Amr, things as they are is better because we're not actually looking at, looking at, uh, things in their um, isolated natures, as in things in themselves. I'm just looking at this thing as it is, because there's nothing in itself except in, you know, its real nature is to exist. A reality is when we encounter haqa'iq in relation to each other. So when we say things as they are, it includes the relations that obtain between them. And ultimately they are in Allah subhanahu wa knowledge and um and just not things in themselves things as they are in his knowledge um so so why is it that knowledge itself i think i'll just read a bit so i have a kind of reference point so um so there are fundamental principles with which we cannot cognize the world let's just back up a bit okay try to delete relation right now from whatever is around you relation try to delete unity okay this is no relation in fact there's a finite relation between me and yusuf in terms of uh, uh, a, a distance 
between me and Sidi Ahmed, between me and Sidi Man, um, and the hundreds of other people in this auditorium. And, um, and this is, uh, um, this is a, a, a genuine and necessary feature of the intelligibility of the world at the moment. If relation is not there, then the world I'm experiencing is not there. The unities, substantial unities. I mean, this is not a joke. This is not just some sort of <laughs> metaphysical luxury that, well, let's think about all these abstract things. You know, why is it that I'm an individual being? Why? why? Why is it that I'm not just this inchoate mass of this inchoate uh, uh, kind of uh, conglomeration of different properties? Um, why is there an I? Why is there a substratum which allows you know, the, the, all of the things going on within me are part of me? All the things going on within Sidi Yusuf are part of him and just him and so on. When, whereas if we analyze the individual from the natural, broad naturalistic point of view, I don't find a substantial unity. I just find lots and lots of different properties. It's that property, I can analyze that property and that property. But where is the, the unity, the substantial unity? It's not something that I can see empirically. Um, again, essence, try to delete relation. So we wouldn't be related. And that would take away the difference. Well, the only way that would be possible if there was no difference. So if there is difference, then there must be relation as well. Um, so difference as well. Why is the world distinct? Well, it's distinct because there are essences informing natures, which are making them different, it, such that things have a different mabda al-athar. The mabda of athar of a plant is not the same as a, 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 a horse, and it's not the same as a human being. There's something informing that matter, whatever the matter, whatever matter really is. Uh, it's not as straightforward as, as popular science would have us think. Um, why, uh, 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 what is it that, 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 that makes the world distinct? Um, why do we see difference? And if there's difference, there's relation. And that essence also has to be a unity. And it also has to have been possible that there's all sorts of things that could be here. And we have to face the question of when we look at the world, why are only all of these possible things here? Well, it's because they're all possible. But if you look in terms of um, a uh, broader, the broadest notion of modality, it's not really clear. I mean, they have that it, it's actually necessary for there to be some intrinsic property. I mean, Ibn Rush thinks possibility that corresponds to prime matter in extramental reality, but possibility is less clear than the other ones. But the point is, you know, try to delete all of those things, try to delete the notion of substance, 
tried to de delete the notion of relation, tried to delete the, the notion of unity, the notion of essence, the notion of, of uh, multiplicity, try to coherently affirm, contend that these are purely mental, as in there is nothing out there corresponding to them. If you say so, then the world, then, then our cognition of the world is subjective. There is nothing in reality. There's nothing rooted in reality. That's why the, the emergent property, the, the epiphenomenalism is so absurd because you are explicitly telling us as part of your theory that none of these cognitive apparatuses which you employ in order to tell us evolution is true are actually rooted in the nature of reality. So why on earth would you think that you should trust your, your intellectual abilities? Um, so, So our so there must be something about reality, which, yes, the Neoplatonists call intellect with a capital I. There's something about reality. Most of us, he save us from this. Hello. <laughs> not at all i was just going to ask you a question just about one way of characterizing the view that you're articulating here so one of the authors i like um, he says it this way he says that a denial of the rootedness of our cognitive apparatuses in reality sorry who that that? Uh, so this is uh, eric pearl in his oh, book eric pearl. yes 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 yeah, yeah so i i just uh, it seems like maybe one way that he presents to characterize this consequence. What, what happens when we say, okay, our, our uh, cognitive apparatuses and all these uh, notions such as unity, multiplicity, etc., are not rooted in reality. He says that the consequence of that is just nihilism. That, yes. that being is nothing. We can't think at all. And so we're just, um, in a way, just blind. There's nothing. We see nothing, nihilism, or however you want to say it. Um, I, I was going to ask you, do you think that's uh, it's a forceful but it seems to me a good accurate way of describing what 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 you're saying yeah i mean i, I, I yeah he, it's a brilliant book and i recommend everyone read thinking being you can get um a if you've got a university account you can actually order a paperback um braille version for 25 pounds instead of it being about 400 or something um you uh, or you could get it out of the library but uh, it's, a, it's a very it's a real book it's very in more ways than one but uh it's a it's an excellent book um uh, but i mean yes I, I don't think he means that in a strict kind of that is that means they're nihilist of course he doesn't mean that that means that their nihilist position is then um uh, consistent because of course I mean, as Tafdezani beautifully puts it in Shafal Haqqaiq, what does he say? He says, Right? He says, The realities of things are distinct in themselves, are established in themselves, they exist excrementally. And knowledge of them is an actualized reality. We really can know them. Shafal Haqqaiq, the delightfully named 
commentary on the creed, um, very creatively named Shatel Akhaid. In any case, it's a it's a it's a very it's a very classic book, very very important in the curriculum, one of the most important books. Um, and, and that's, I mean, actually, those words are from Al Aqid and Nasafiya, which he's commentating on. So, um, and then he talks about Asbab al Almi al Khalqi Thalatha. But um, uh, one of the ways that he describes this, well, Khilaf and Lafsofastaiya, what, what is it that the Sofastaiya, the Sophists, contend? They say, well, the Haqaq al Asha'i are not thabit, right? They're not thabita, as in, and, and our ilm of them is not mutahakib. So there are no realities of things in themselves. See, there's nothing new under the sun. There's no realities of things in themselves. And knowledge of them is also not real and hasn't happened. And we don't have it, don't have access to it. Um, and, you know, the, he, he, he talks about three varieties of sophists um, who, you can see, um, if you remember Sidi Niaz, we, we kind of looked into this a few years ago. Um, uh, I think we were discussing this about how can we root the three types of sophist in the yes. skeptics themselves. But um, you know, have the La Adria and you have the Marivesh um, and the, what are they called? La Adria and uh, India. La India. And what's the other one? And one other one. Yes. Huh? One other one. I'm trying to re remember it right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think the Enadia are the ones who are saying, I, 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 I shook that I know, and I even doubt that I doubt that I know, and I just doubt that I don't I know. I just don't know if I know anything at all. And I doubt even that. And I just, and um, the uh, the India are the ones who say, oh, it's just, you know, for me, this is a camel. The India, because <laughs> I construct my own reality. I identify this as a camel. I also identify as a camel, right? That's the India. And then what's the other one? Huh? La Adria. Yeah, I can't remember. It's a long time ago. Anyway, <laughs> the point is uh, that there are three types of them, which you you kind of can't really root in in the ancient skeptics, but you kind of can. In any case, that's not our mabhath. But the important thing is, um, how does he respond to them? It's a beautiful way. He says, if you say there are no real realities of things, Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the other one are just the people who say there are no realities. There are no distinct realities of things. So they're, they're kind of, there's a moment of source between them. So um, <clears throat> why, so, you know, they're all, they all reject that they're, they're a particular, but they don't always, they don't all, they don't, they all reject that there are distinct essences in themselves, but they don't all go so far. So there's a moment of source. So, um, why, um, how does he respond to them? He says, well, look, if you're saying there are no realities to things, this is not a distinct book, this is not a distinct table, it's not really anything in itself, there's no sky, there's no human beings, it's all just appearances, 
it's all just maybe, right? Is that true or false? I say, of course it's true. Well, that's a haqiqah. You've described reality as it is. The only ones who Tafdazani says you can't discuss with are the ones who say I'm I, I shook that I shook. I'm not even I'm not even committing. You know, my epistemological humility doesn't allow me to um, even commit here. I'm not even certain that I'm not certain. And I'll let you discover Tafdazani's remedy for them in the original. Because, I mean, I know this only gets shared out to a small group, but still, I think um, it's a security concern for me. But in any case, uh, but go and have a look at what he prescribes for that. Um, so, Molana Sachi, did you have something? No, go ahead, Ayaz, go ahead. I don't think they'll see the there's the chat, the Mahabra. I don't think they'll see the chat. Yeah. Exactly. Harkahum bin Nar, yeah. So uh, <laughs> so um go ahead, Sidi Satchi, Tfadal. Yeah, so just to kind of um, kind of get an overall picture here, we, we're trying to figure out um, what it means to know, right? Um, how is it that we come to know something as well, right? Which are um, genuine questions, right? And of course, the, the sophists uh, will say from the beginning, you know, these sort of confusing things uh, to which you can reply that they are um, uh, basically going through a performative contradiction. Um, uh, that, that's okay, but then they, the, the question still stands as to, you know, how is it we come to know, right? So in, in the sense, I guess there are a lot of these guys, and a lot of modern guys, right? Modern skeptics are asking, um, how is it that you know um, these things you, you think you know are established, right? How are they established? Like, what's the sort of quote-unquote mechanism? That, I don't like that word mechanism, but you know, you know what I mean, right? But, uh, is that is that uh, would you say that that's sort of the question, and is that what we're trying to address here? I think your microphone, your microphone is off, Sidi Hassan. Sorry about that. Um, you know, you, 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 on a certain level, yes, it is the question, Habibi. Um, but it's only a certain level of the question. Um, you know, one might say to that person, well, already you formulated a question. All of the words have dalalat. You think they all respond to things which exist in reality. Um, you believe that the, the, the question admits of either a, a true or a false answer, or we can at least intelligibly say we don't know if it's true or not. But that is still affirming haqiqah, we don't know if it's true or not, right? Um, and so, you know, that person is already employing all sorts, he's presupposing all sorts of self-evident principles. He's presupposing they're all operative. So there's only one level of the question. We could say to the person, well, we're just saying that the intelligible building blocks of being and knowing are self-evident. And he would have to say, yes, they're self-evident, at least insofar as I can't consistently doubt them. The question then becomes though, 
how do I know that they are rooted in reality? It seems to be possible consistently to say, yes, they're self-evident, but I don't know if they're really rooted in reality beyond the you know, proliferation of, of subjective minds. How do I know they're not imposed? On the, now, it's not really enough to say, well, it's self-evident. At that point, you say, well, no, there has to be, it's true, there has to be something about reality which makes our cognitive apparatuses applicable, genuinely applicable. Did, did you have something, Sidi Tamer? Yes, yes. I was just, um, I, I, I'm trying to think about uh, the distinction that you're drawing between um, our claims just being phenomenological or self-evident, like uh, just to assert the fact that there are intelligible features of reality and that we are all agreed agreeing on this. But the difference between that and and uh, and the position that we have to ontologically justify that these features of reality are in fact grounded in something. Um, my thought just my thought just was: uh, is it is it is it still true though that in responding to the skeptic? Uh, the, the the starting point of our discussion is not so much of um, uh, a rational proof uh, for the fact that thinking and being have like this relationship. It is just like the phenomenological um, sort of um, experience that we have of the world. We find ourselves intelligizing things and, and, and we find ourselves being self-contradictory when we try to say otherwise. So there's something uh, of, uh, about the fact, a, a fact of the, the unity or this you know, some kind of congruence between thinking and being that almost must be presupposed. And it's not something that, you know, can be further justified as if we could get further below it. Uh, is, is, that, is that an accurate uh, description of the, the state of affairs here? It's a very good point, but I think that you can go beyond it. Why? Because if not, then there is the specter of, of solipsistic idealism. Um, uh, if knowing and being are identical, at least in the straw man way that we think of you know, the, some of the German idealists, then um, just for argument's sake, then um, how can we transcend the purely imminent? And there's a difference between saying knowing and being are intimately intertwined because knowing or intellect with a capital I is prior to the sensible world. It's a, it's a fundamental uh, feature of being, a fundamental constituent of being. And the difference between that and saying, well, our subjective, our personal experience of, uh, uh, of knowing is the same as being, because we can't see beyond that simple, direct, proximate experience, the imminent reality. That's why I've put here, um, if reality is no more than the very, this is on page 17, just under the middle, if reality is no more than the very phenomenon of perception itself, in itself, whence our distinction between true and false propositions, if the contents of our mind are reality itself, we are once again awoken in the nightmare of solipsistic idealism, we have no control over the intelligible features of our objects of knowledge, and yet no way to see past our modes of knowing them. So, you know, we see the world, let's say, for the sake of argument, in whatever, I mean, you, any theory could be used, but the point is they're contingent. We see the world through abstraction, secondary intelligibles, primary intelligibles, sense data, whatever. 
but we can conceive of any number of different ways of possibly accurately representing the world that don't include any of those things. Now, I, uh, you know, some people say, well, no, that's just not it. But I, I think, you know, I think that argument holds. But I think what can be um, the, 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 the very clear way out of that is to say, well, there is a realm of intellect. And it doesn't mean that we have to accept the neoplatonic hypostasis of intellect with all that it entails. But broadly, there is something about reality that is intellectual in itself, that the um, intelligible world is prior to the sensible world. And our finite minds participate in the intelligible world when they know things. And they participate in finite and idiosyncratic and individual ways because of our individuality. Um, so, so, I mean, yes, I agree with you. But, but I think plumbing the depths of, of being and seeing that when I say being and knowing are identical, I'm affirming that there is there are knowers who are beyond any finite knower. There are different maratib, there are different degrees of, of uh, knowing which correspond to higher levels of being. And I think if you don't affirm that, then you do end up with this difficulty that there is a, you can't get beyond the immediate experience that you have of things. And then you can say, well, when I'm positing these other Maratma having experience of them, sure. You're, you're, but th that means that your being is fluid. It can be expanded uh, through, through purification. Through, that's also why the broadly Sufi and broadly Platonic and other forms of, uh, of, of traditions of wisdom which involve purification um, can, we don't have this danger of this kind of shut-in syndrome that we have where um, you know, Hegel and others, yes, they identified knowing and being, but they identified um, the imminent dimensions of knowing alone with being. And they said, that's being, that's it. Which is problematic. Siddhi Satchi, did you have... Uh... Yeah, just to kind of uh, follow on from that. So I guess we are trying to figure out, you know, what it is that explains the possibility of knowing, right? Now, um, yes, um, some people could just reply to that and say, um, God does it, right? And that's try to shut things off there. And that's true in a sense, yes, of course, God does it ultimately, right? God's responsible for everything, right? Uh, but we're trying to find something proximate, some more proximate reason or uh, mechanism, not, not mechanism is not the right word, uh, proximate means, right? That can explain the, the possibility of knowing. And yes, you can go to the intellects, right? For sure. But if you're dealing with uh, skeptics who have a problem with um, uh, accepting that this table is in front of them, <laughs> right? Uh, to, to then take them, you know, start talking about intellect is probably like a few steps away, if you know what I mean, right? I guess we have to first um, uh, do the sort of, um, you know, the fire steps or the other kind of steps to, to convince them, no, actually, this table does exist, you know, and then uh, what, what is to explain your knowledge of it, um, then we can eventually get to the intellect, right? Is, is that right? 
Yes, Siddi, um, I, I see your point. Um, and um, I think there is a tendency in modern philosophy to give far too much credence to the skeptic. The, I think the, the more traditional response would be to question whether the skeptic is really doing anything other than pure Hathayan. You know, the table doesn't exist. Um, you know, let's have a, a quick look at that and we'll find that it's not really a valid objection. I mean, we, we start with, you know, the Ruriyat and some of the Ruriyat is sensible. Our, um, you know, our ihsas is Daruri. We can't consistently doubt it. Um, when he says, does the table not exist, does he mean the metaphysical interpretation of what that is? Well, that's a different matter. That's it's, uh, nothing to do with the... There, and so there, there are various ways to deal with, with that type of skeptic. I'd say, you know, without getting into it, because in a way that's what we're exploring for hundreds of pages, but the, the, you know, the, 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 the best way out of it is to invoke the one over the many and to say and to show as has been beautifully um, or achieved um, that uh, the one over the many which renders the world intelligible, i.e. distinct, such that the person denying the table can say that there's a table that I hear for me to deny in the first place, can use the term in the first place, um, that the one over the many that makes that possible, or the ones over the many's, has to have being, and it's not. It can't simply be conceptual. And and it's, it, and you know, this is basically because if it didn't have being, it wouldn't be. Um, uh, if it if it if it if it if it wasn't uh, if it didn't have genuine being, it wouldn't be a thought in the first place. Um, and um, we'll discuss this. Half of us, and who's this great um, German? philosopher who died, Jens Hafwassen, who died very recently, probably of COVID, I'm afraid, because he was young and he was a brilliant scholar of Neoplatonism, but also a very creative thinker. Um, he has a beautiful, uh, the best thing I've ever seen actually on this. But anyway, we'll get to that. But um, um, please don't take my, I mean, I, I don't in any sense, um, if I stop talking about something, it doesn't mean there I've nailed it. It's just that we need to move on to the next section. But yes, I mean, these are all fascinating um, questions that need more exploration. Um, so then we have this difficulty of, well, are we going to remain purely locked into the realm of the conceptual? Are we going to be able to um, to transcend the discursive. Is there any sense in which it's a, a terrible poverty to be stuck within these kind of logical structures and I'm building ever and ever more complicated syllogisms and whatever it happens to me. Um, is there any way to escape this? Is there any way to affirm all of the different dimensions of human um oh i wanted to read this by the way on page 80 all metaphysical cognition is a form of a metasensual vision shuhud 
at its highest level. And consequently, true cognition can never be blind. The act of cognitive ascent is thus the activation of the will once this vision has been gifted. Metaphysical cognition, therefore, is the highest conviction possible that one may have more than any dialectical process may deliver when arriving at a reasoned conclusion. The conclusion may be reasoned out of, much in the manner of how it was reasoned into. True metaphysical thought, however, cannot be reasoned in or out of. But this is not just invoking self-evidence. This is invoking an ascent of knowing and being, a simultaneous ascent of knowing and being, which presupposes purification. So, um, so in this study within the, this is on page 18 in the middle, in this study within the context of the indigenous resources of Islamic philosophy, we'll try to ascertain whether it is possible justifiably to attempt to identify the nature of this realm, nafs al-amr, or things as they are in themselves. Just a moment. What happened to that side thing? Oh, okay. The mere exploration of this most fundamental of questions will, we contend, be instrumental in suggesting the outlines of any future theological system able to serve the genuine and faithful continuation of a higher Sunni kalam, a type of kalam that is today seriously and literally at risk of extinction. As we have said, there exist a number of approaches to dealing with Nafsul Ahmad. Perhaps the most distinctive aspect of the study is that it hopes to be open to the full scope of the sources of knowledge that the ulama drew upon in their formulations of various theories of Nafsul Ahmad. Now, it is a fact that the later Mutakallimin, many of them, and, and key ones, like Sayyid Sharif al Jurjani um, and, and others, adopted the Akbarian understanding of Nafs al-Amr as the Aryan Thabit, as al-Hadra al-Almiyyah, the divine sciential presence, which is an accurate translation. I'm not sure if it's a good one, but the, the sciential presence, to use an old, old word. I had to look in the historical theosaurus for that. The al-Hadra al-Almiyyah, they adopted that as the tahqiq of what Nafs al-Amr is, Tashka Prasad, they did it, and, and many others, and then you find it in Gurani, and you find it in Al-Alusi, and you find it all over the place. And, and you find it even mentioned in, like, Banani on Jama'a Jawami. I mean, it really goes into all over the place. So, um, now, that is not a theory which is arrived at by the usual imminentist you know, Mashai Kalam method of applying first principles, rational first principles to sense experience. It's just not. So something has happened there, which is very interesting. Um, perhaps the most distinctive aspect of this study is that it hopes to be open to the full scope of the sources of knowledge that the ulama drew upon in their formulations of various theories of Nafs al-Amr, even though some of these sources may feel unfamiliar or seem incredible to many who have grown up surrounded by the general epistemological assumptions that characterize contemporary fashion. <clears throat> that is, we hope to be open to the results of the scholar sages who acknowledge that underlying and informing the discursive intellect, there is always the receptive intellect. Intellects have a limit at which they must come to a halt insofar as they are discursive, not insofar as they are receptive. Can we go on, Yamalana? Just a moment, let me have a master to advanced and audiovisual apparatuses. Hold on. Okay. 
Can you uh, shout, please? This magisterial Akbarian distinction is one of the most fruitful in all of what, for the sake of convenience, we might call philosophy. Although clearly the purpose of the distinction is partly to demonstrate how philosophy as commonly understood might be transcended, and indeed, that strictly speaking, there can be no such thing as pure reason. Briefly, the receptive intellect is the human intellect as the effective, infa'ali receptacle of knowledge. In general terms, this encompasses receptivity to all type, possible types of knowledge, whether, for example, sense knowledge or that provided by the revelation of sacred texts. Perhaps the most important dimension of this distinction in the context of widening the scope of knowledge of Nafs al-Amr is the receptivity of this aspect of intellect to the gnosis of mystical unveiling, Kesh. The important point is that this is knowledge that man is taught. He cannot experience the particular corner of the sensible world. Cannot not. He cannot, yeah, he cannot not experience the particular corner of the sensible world that has been destined to be all he knows of that sensible world. He cannot not encounter the holy effusion of the Quranic revelation. If it has been determined that this should be his lot, he is receptive to all manner of insights, intuitions, dreams, and premonitions, and indeed to true cash in which, dis dis <clears throat> in which discursive thinking plays no essential part. What is more, it is this experience, sense experience, the experience of the one over the many, and perhaps revelational and mystical as well, if he is given them, which the discursive intellect tries to make sense of and cannot escape being wholly informed by. The discursive intellect is reason, the intellect that employs necessary first principles and innate concepts, organizes premises, constructs syllogisms, and discerns the necessary entailment, and discerns necessary entailment the rational mind of speculative philosophy, while a Sheikh al-Akbar ibn Arabi, the greatest master, does acknowledge that it is within the, proper uh, within the proper competence of the discursive intellect to demonstrate fundamental articles of faith, like God's existence and unity, and the reality of divine messengers and revelation. It often has difficulty understanding truths provided by the very revelation it has proven to be real, about the actual nature of God and his spiritual world, it's sometimes even denying these truths altogether on the basis of proofs of their apparent logical impossibility. The Mu'tazili rejection of the beatific vision and the philosopher's rejection of the bodily resurrection spring to mind. Of course, these particular rational proofs are not, says Ibn Arabi, true proofs in Nafs al-Amr. The, the essences of such matters cannot be arrived at through the exercise of mere reason. Reason must thus be aided by direct experience. This is because the discursive intellect requires matter to work on. On its own, it can provide little more than empty logical form. In his Futuhat, the greatest master goes on to give a full account of this inter internal contingency of the discursive intellect. Quote, when the cogitative faculty, al-quwa al-mufakira, proceeds to the imagery, al-khayal, it is dependent on the form-bearing faculty, al-quwa al-musawwira, in order to construct by means of it out of the, out of the matters that have been apprehended by the imagery to form the evidence regarding a particular thing and a conclusive proof wherein it can be grounded in sensible knowledge or necessary principles, which are both set within man's natural disposition. Now, when thought, al-fikr, conceives that proof, of that proof, the intellect, al-aql, then takes, takes it from it and passes judgment upon the object of proof. There is no faculty but that it has impediments and errors that need to be differentiated from that which is established and accurate. Look then, my brother, how impoverished the intellect is, in that it knows nothing we have mentioned except through these faculties that themselves have such defects. 
we come to we have come to know that the intellect has nothing of itself and that all of the knowledge it acquires only obtains because the intellect is characterized by the attribute of receptivity qabul it's receiving from its lord that which he most high says about himself then is superior to its receiving from its thought end quote the imagery can in the first in in the first instance only work on what it receives from the senses if the memory does not then retain what is obtained in the imagery it will be lost this deprives the imagery of numerous aspects of the proper representation of the full range of sensible particulars the faculty of memory will then stand in need of the faculty that combined it the point is underlying reason there are numerous faculties quite susceptible to deficiency or error which reason itself has no control over. Thought, al-fiqr, is a blind follower, muqallid, of the imagery, and the imagery is a blind follower of the senses, and over and beyond thought's blind following. It is not even able to keep hold of its thoughts without help from the memory, and the faculty that reminds the memory. In itself, reason possesses no knowledge at all, except its innate necessary principles, How strange, then, that despite knowing, knowing reason's radical contingency upon these faculties, people continue to continue to find it far-fetched that underlying reason, there exists a more fundamental faculty which, with spiritual exercises and the transcendence of mere thought, can, as quasi-necessary but not sufficient conditions, give different and more trustworthy results than those yielded by unaided reason. Can we stop there, Melan? Thank you. I think it would be very unwise um, for me to say that this is what Al-Sheikh Al-Akbar means here. I can say with certainty that what he means is something much more elevated than this. But I think that what I've learned, I think, from, from his tradition, his followers, the, the school of Al-Sheikh Al-Akbar and the way that they interact with his corpus is that through almost the generosity of the sheikh, I mean, what you realize about the sheikh Lakbar is he's not talking on our level. Um, and uh, he's not even talking on the level of great masters of cash i mean he's he's really he's on quite a different and unique maqam um but what is extraordinary about al sheikh al akbar is that his the baraka surrounding his work is so so plentiful it's so rich that you can take something, you know, I think if you try to have the proper adab, you can take something which illuminates a whole nother area that work. I mean, what we're doing is, you know, fiddling about with, I mean, frankly, with, you know, a bit of, uh, a bit of metaphysics and a bit of philosophy. And that's what I'm doing anyway. Um, and trying to understand how it might be possible to, 
transcend these modern limitative instrumentalist um, uh, uh, reductionist notions of reason um, by going for something a bit more holistic that takes into account the spiritual capacities of human beings and then and thus looks at various different types of of uh, philosophies like the Neoplatonists, but but you know Plotinus, I absolutely love and he's wonderful, but he's not um, doing what Sheikh Al-Akbar is doing. It mustn't be thought that we're equating these people at all. No, um, you know this is a, an extraordinary saint, and he, the level of this level of discourse is is not the the discursive level that we're talking about. It's about shahood, it's about direct knowledge of haqqaiq, and, and it's about more than that. It's more than, it's about his ubudiyah and his maqam with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But so rich, uh, so bright are the rays of, of, of his work that you can take one ibadah from him and it illuminates everything that you're doing. So, um, so it's, it's in that spirit that I think that I'm trying to bring this in here. Um, but broadly, I mean, in the way that what I've understood fits into what we're doing here, the, you know, Sheikh Al-Akbar talks about all of these different faculties um, Within the, uh, uh, the, the, the the apparatuses of, of human knowing, and these are familiar from Avicennan philosophy um, and other philosophies, the Khayal and Al Qawwal Musawwira and Al Qawwal Mudakkira. In some sense, there's an Atibari aspect to this. It's not so much that necessarily all of these have to be affirmed as actually, in some sense existing things in in any crude sense but i mean a, a common um account of abstraction for example would be that when we want to know no i mean our natural manner of knowing the particular is in terms of its universality so when I see the particular human beings, it's because I'm able to see something universal running through all of them. And, you know, on an account of abstraction, which I absolutely don't accept, and, and I don't believe that the Mahapakhin accept either, um, uh, but on a common account of abstraction, you start with the sense datum, you start with uh, something that is, you know, a, a, a sense experience, a direct relation of your senses to the sense object, which is in some sense um, inchoate and not fully intelligible at this point. And that sense impression goes into the khayal, the imagery or the imagination, and 
this is not a temporal process, but it, and, and it is in some sense, this is kind of taking apart what's happening. And then um, is stored there, um, but becomes illuminated by something that is not within our power because on this understanding there's a separation there's in some sense a genuine separation between the sensible and the intelligible and it's not within our power to discern the universal nature which is embodied by that particular sense configuration and so we require at that point a failed of some sort that illuminates that image in the Chayal so that we see its proper intelligibility and, and, um, and, uh, and you know, you have Quwat al-Waham, which is, you know, the, the notion that there are um, particular meanings which appertain to particular uh, to, to, to particulars um, and you know the, the example that's always given of that is that is, is the animal sensing danger they're sensing danger from the particular predator animal and you know that's waham and and there are and, and in any case that the intellect if you isolate it and, you, and we're saying we are rationalists and we're doing you know we're gonna have a pure, pure uh, reason-based philosophy. Well, all that the reason really has is that which is very significant in the first place, um, that, I mean, they're in the fitra, which is <laughs> itself a distinctive philosophical point of view. That's not, every, it's not a tabula rasa understanding. There's el elsewhere that Al-Sheikh Al-Akbar says, that all are to sawarata dhururiya. Um, but in any case, um, the, the intellect is radically contingent. It only knows what it happens to know. You know, I happen to be born in this particular place. I happen to have these particular influences. I happen to meet these particular people. I happen to not even be aware of this huge swathe of things that would have helped me to to know more of the truth, if I'd under, if I'd, you know, met Sheikh Abdul Qadir Al Jilani and I'd been his marid, you know, I'd probably be a very different person than if I took Richard Dawkins as my sheikh, you know, uh, and I, I kind of cornered, my, but I'm, I've still got this aql that I think is, you know, it's moving the whole time. But what am I, what am I, I mean, I'm putting it deliberately creepy, but what, what, what is that? What is the matter that that What's the matter? Um, <laughs> what's the matter? That reminds me of uh, when the Victorian moralists used to make fun of philosophy. They'd say, what's the matter and no matter when they were asked uh, various philosophical questions but um, about the nature of the world. But, um, um, but, but that's what, you know, I'm limited by my experience, essentially, in all sorts of different ways. And there's also an internal contingency. Um, if I simply haven't had the requisite sense experience, then I can't use my apple to, to talk about it. Um, the, um, 
And so what ends up happening, what ends up happening is that the, the aql starts to pronounce on things that it hasn't had experience of and it can't really understand. So the Sheikh Al-Akbar affirms, and he affirms in many, many different places in uh, Al-Fatihat, that the Aql can know, and this is against those who say that this is, uh, that, who deny this of him, and it's absolutely uh, untenable that notion, the idea that he says that the Aql can't know anything, can't know his existence of God, it can't know that. That is absolutely untrue. The, the, the Sheikh Al-Akbar affirms in many, many different places, in very plain language, that the Aql is capable of knowing the existence of God, the unity of Allah and the um, and and you know basically the whole of negative theology, the via negativa, and um, uh, the imkana uh, risala. and the actuality of Risala in a certain way. But then, once we have ascent to the revelation, even in that very, well, in some sense, meager capacity in terms of just pure intellect, we find that in the revelation, قَدْ أَتَى فِي إِخْبَارِهِ عَنْهُ تَعَالَى بِالنِّسَبٍ وَأُمُورٍ كَانَ الدَّلِيلُ الْعَقْلِ يُحِيلُهَا وَيَرْمِي بِهَا فَتَوَقَّفَ الْعَقْلُ وَاتَّهَمَ مَعْرِفَتَهُ وَقَدَحَ فِي دَلِيلِهِ هذا الإنباء الإلهي بما نسبه لنفسه ولا يقدر على تكذيب المخبر. So the rationalist, for want of a better word, then finds himself in a very difficult situation because he has come to know the truth of revelation through his aql. But then he finds that there are things in the revelation which don't accord with his rational structures. For example, the Martesli says it's impossible that we could see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, it says that we will. You know, and the, the hadith, a hadith about it, but but it says that we will, but it's not really what it means. And we have to, you know, interpret it so that it accords with our rational structures. For example, and then he, he says further on, وَإِنَّ ذَلِكَ الَّذِي اتَّخَذَهُ دَلِيلًا عَلَىٰ إِحَالَةِ ذَلِكَ عَلَىٰ اللَّهِ لَمْ يَكُنْ دَلِيلًا فِي نَفْسِ الْأَمْرِ Now, why is this incredible? Because it totally takes away, and this is something that Maulana Karim then brings in when he talks about this passage um, 
I'll just move that over here. And shouldn't really touch it, but um, but um, Molana City Cream here. He says, and this is very beneficial for illuminating what we find here. The second way, this is on page 75, the second way for the knowledge of God that Ibn Arabi outlines is that which is acceded to through reflection, fikr, and investigation, istidlal, by way of rational demonstration, istidlal al-Burhan, bil-Burhan al-Aqli. The second way is considered inferior to the first as it is based on proof, delil, because every rational proof can be subject to doubt and confusion, or alternatively subject to strict intellectual discipline that may cast out such doubts. In his letter to Razi, he counsels that it is incumbent on the aql to divest Tahlia, his heart of resignation, if he wishes to reach the knowledge of God by way of mushahada. This impoverishment is necessarily demanded of the aspirant as whatever does not have perfection, except through that which is other than itself, is poor. And this is the condition of everything other than God, for he is of El-Ghani. This, however, does not amount to a denial of the powers of reasoning, nor a denial of the faculty of reason in preference to kashf, this does not amount to a denial of the powers of reasoning, nor a denial of the faculty of reason in preference to cash, but a psychological reordering that permits one to place things in their rightful place. One could say that Ibn Arabi is warning that truth may be hidden by rational proofs, just as much as being may be hidden by existence. Truth may be hidden by rational proofs, just as much as being, with a capital B, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in reality, may be hidden by existence. Know that when the people of reflection, quote, attained the furthermost goal, their reflection takes them to the state of being deaf imitators. But the matter is too exalted for it to halt at reflection. So long as there is reflection, it will be impossible for one to repose and be at rest. The intellect has a limit at which it halts with respect to its reflective powers, for it has the quality of receiving only what God bestows upon it. Therefore, an intelligent person should expose himself to the divine breaths of generosity, nefahat al-jud, and not remain enslaved by the shackle of his rational consideration and learning, cursed for he is liable to doubt shubha because of these, 211. That's uh, in his Risala ilal imam al-Razi, you see. And you'll find this, that the intellect has sifat al-qubul actually in many different places. And this is in, well, of the Yemeni edition, it's volume two, um, page 142. It's al-bab al fi ma'rafati asrari ahl al-ilham al-mustadillin. So, Siddi Kareem goes on, if the power of reasoning is indeed passive and that the mind has the attribute of receptivity alone, to what God bestows upon it, then the intellectual sciences at the highest level are a matter of inspiration, wahab, rather than kasb. In the Muqaddimat to the Futuhat, this is the first place he mentions, this is another place he mentions it. Ibn Arabi states categorically that the intellect has limits at which it ceases to function as a thinking tool, but not in its receptive capacity to divine inspiration.
Um, he further continues that with regard to something that may be considered rationally impossible, the case may not be impossible in relation to God, just as what the intellect may consider possible may nevertheless be impossible in relation to God. So in the context of Sidi Karim's book, does that mean there's a violation of the principle of non-contradiction? It's possible in relation to God, but it's not possible in relation to the intellect? No, because the intellect has sifat al-qubul. So the discursive intellect is only one limitary aspect of the intellect, as in the discursive, what is fairly in it. Well, I can decide that I'm going to reason about um, chairs, and I say every chair is a body, and every body is a substance, and therefore every chair is a substance, and every substance is, is in relation to this, and therefore every chair is. So I'm, you know, I'm making the decision to start this discursive process. Um, that's the discursive intellect. But that's not all that there is to the intellect. The intellect has a receptive dimension, where there are no limits to the to what Allah Subhanahu wa Taala can teach it. So this is not a, a violation of, of the principle of non-contradiction, and it's made very clear here. Right? It, 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 it's 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 not a it's not in reality a dalil, but because the person is struck stuck in their limitary rational structures, the one they happen to know about, they think it's a dalil. But it's not a dalil in nafs al-amr. If it was a dalil in nafs al-amr, it would make the thing not true. That's what I'm trying to say, and this is further shown. Uh, just straight after. So it's not that the Anbiya was saying, oh, look, there's my reason. I'm rejecting that. And this is something beyond. No. Those things that our reason says are impossible. Uh, and the person who has the kashf knowledge of the thing in question, his aql also accepts it. It's not that he has the kashf that it's true and then his, he's aware that his aql is saying that's not true. No, 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 no. That's not what's intended. It says, Bila shak, Bila shak In any case, I'm going to stop now. So, um, Um, may Allah forgive me for um, any presumption and even opening the book. And I hope that we remember my disclaimer. Um, shall we, do you mind, Siddi, timer before your discussion point, we just very quickly read another little, oops. Sorry about that. Sorry. Can you lift it up, Habibi, if you don't mind? Just because I don't want to. Thanks. Um, 
sorry, I can just turn down the camera, silly me. Um, could, could we just read a, a tiny bit further, Siddhi? Reason is the human universalizing intellectual faculty reflecting and able to discern the hierarchical order of intelligible relations, like those of identity and difference, priority and posteriority, subordinacy and superordinacy, superordinacy participation and subsumption, casual, causal relations, and so on. They're not casual relations. <laughs> and so on, that are constitutive of the intelligible structure governing both sensible particular and universal being, as well as being which transcends both the sensible particular and the universal. By combining these elements in accordance with the rules of logic, rules that themselves reflect this ontological and even more fundamentally henological backdrop of hierarchy and priority, reason can achieve its goal, which is to arrive guided by the principle of non-contradiction at natures and essences in their full distinctness. Yet reason is almost totally at the mercy of even more fundamental human faculties, which provide the actual content, the matter of intellection. For example, when reason utilizes the term horse in a proposition, it is not because reason has been able to conjure real individual animals into existence by some sort of syllogistic process. And this is because the syllogistic process presupposes rather than provides the matter that it works upon. Instead, the particular individual animals that one meets, once the term animal is abstracted, as the matter for some instance of speculative reasoning, are given to one's cognition. If circumstances have not enabled one to have ever seen or heard of a horse, one will not be able to reason about them at all. Reason itself then is quite helpless. It does nothing more than to impose the form, for example, a particular figure, figure and move of, mood of the syllogism, onto matter that it cannot strictly speaking choose, but that is rather given to it. To assist us in absorbing this... Right, let's stop there, because I don't think really I was hoping we might be able to get at least close to finishing this, but we'll definitely finish the introduction next time. Uh, next time will be in two weeks from now, because thank goodness uh, for you, Molana and for me, Molana um, Karim will be returning, inshallah, next time. Um, yeah, we should close up. I'm aware that it's almost, it's two to eight, but I'd say those who would really like to stay for another 10 minutes uh, are more than welcome to do so. And those who need to go, I uh, will fully understand you leaving. Um, and um, so please, Tafadal Yasidi, timer. Uh, yes, yes. I have your name, uh, by the way. Sorry? Habibi George, goodbye. The, the, Salaam Alaikum. The, 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 how do you pronounce your name? Sorry. sorry. Temur. Ah. Yes. Um, so, I, uh, so my question is about um, the receptivity, the receptive nature of the intellect. Uh, so we began that discussion about uh, the receptivity of the intellect after we were previously you know, speaking about the purely intelligible and abstract features of reality. I wanted to ask that are those purely intelligible features like unity, multiplicity, and and, and so on, are these uh, um, um, also sort of received by the intellect? So when we use the word receptive, do we include these features, purely intelligible features of reality to be a part of that? I believe so, yes. Um, the, the Sorry, just a moment, I saw this Zoom stuff. Um, 
Yes, in the in the very broadest sense, absolutely. Why? Because uh, I mean, we can say categorically, yeah, every, this is the creation of Allah's Mantala. You know, what is every whatever is in our our fitra uh, is um, uh, is going to be uh, ultimately receptive. It's it's of the the passive nature. In fact, Malana Cream does say this explicitly. Um, have a look, quick look. Um, where he relates this to the passivity of the intellect. Um, But, but in any case, yes, uh, I mean, you know, to take it down a notch, um, you know, Sam, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who, Coleridge who's, who's a remarkable thinker, I mean, he said that uh, reason is just another species of revelation. Um, and you know, this is a, a divine gift that we are given to Lazarus that, that, you know, and he also says, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, that you know, it, um, that the relation of the intellect to metaphysical reality is like the, the relation of the eye to a sensible reality. It, it uncovers, it sheds light on them, it unveils. The, and so, yes, these are, I mean, this is one of the arguments of the book that these, you know, just to give you a sneak peek, that these, um, what we think are imminently are the, the features of our cognitive apparatuses are actually features of reality that possess their own exemplary forms that condition degrees of being prior to the degree of alam al-mulk that are um, uh, kind of meta principles which uh, are beyond even the transcendentals the transcendentals transcend the categories but the meta principles <clears throat> transcend the transcendentals and that are ultimately rooted in the primary attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, so that, that's one of the arguments of, that you'll find in chapter four. Um, so yes, very much the, is the idea that these things are also failed. They're, they're also, I, I'm not speaking, uh, you know, for Al-Sheikh Al-Akbar. He, you know, uh, khalas, I, I'm very serious when I say that I'm not worthy to touch the book um but i do touch the book um for <laughs> for for uh for various circumstances and reasons but uh which i hope i'm justified in but um but but i'm not purporting you know he doesn't he's not putting forward a system he's beyond <laughs> what he's doing is something much more elevated than that uh molana Satri. Yeah, um, just if you could, uh, I was wondering if you could go a little bit more into uh, what you said earlier about um, the interaction between cash and uh, discursive knowledge. Yeah. So someone, um, let's say, figures out, you know, one plus one is two, or this table is here, whatever they figure out discursively. And then uh, through cash, they see that um, that corresponds to something else, right, um, as well. 
Uh, so we say that whatever they learned through cash, that, uh, well, would we call that a concept or would we, would we say that, in, well, what kind of thing is it, first of all, like what category do we put it in? I, I'm not meaning that it should be in, a, in an Aristotelian, Aristotelian category, but what kind of thing is it, number one? Number two, do we say that it explains the discourses? Um, or do we just say, look, it's just stuff in a different realm and they kind of relate to the discursive, but we don't know what the relationship is? Well, it depends on the, 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 the person having cash. So um, uh, the person might see that um, he, he, he encompasses within his cash for the rational proof, and he might not. Uh, it's not necessary that he does, but he may do. And, and, and reality makes that possible because there's no split in reality. And these different orders of intelligibility are continuous. Um, but yes, seeing the Malakuti dimension of things that are in the mulk may well be something that is gifted to someone. They may see what is in the mulk, and they may also see the Malakuti uh, dimension of that thing, um, the existence of that thing in Alam Mithal, the pure meaning of that thing, the existence of that thing, of the exemplar of that thing in Alam Al-Arwah. They might see that. Um, let me read a, a, a little passage. Um, and then we'll have pretty much ready to close unless someone has a burning um point to make which i'd be interested to hear but i just am having to bear in mind the fact we have to stick to the plan to some degree but we'll find this next time on page well in two weeks time page 24 um In occupying various intelligible positions of priority and posteriority in the hierarchical scheme of order uncovered by the more holistic mode of reason we advocate in this study, whose primary intuition is not the empirical particular, but rather the one over the many which uncovers this intrinsic order, these haqa'iq, these objects of mystical cognition, leave their imprint on reality by informing an intelligible order accessible by this henological experiential reason. A reason illuminated by direct experience of those realities will experience that intelligible order, but without the benefit of experience, reason nonetheless remains not entirely bereft, still able to discern that order, however faintly, through a glass darkly. It is after all possible for the single effusion of being and truth to overflow into the realm of speculative thought, such that the principles of mystical unveiling become accessible even to that familiar particularized framework. For human reason constitutes a limitative power of the human spirit, as Maulana Sadrin al-Qunwi says, the spirit that with respect to itself possesses a much broader scope of knowledge of reality. Reason is a power which with respect to its temporal unfolding constitutes the process by which multiplicities are subsumed into unities in accordance with the dictates of causal priority and posteriority. Yet that temporal process thereby uncovers realities that are in themselves timeless. Indeed, the structures of reason in themselves are timeless. It is only with respect to their instantiation within our states of physical situatedness that they take on modes of subordinate contingency with respect to individual temporal unfolding. 
thus an elevated form of holistic reason, which recognizes that the appearances of reason are only possible because of prior exemplary forms that grant them intelligibility and rootedness in, in being, is capable from behind the veil, as it were, of demonstrating the truth of certain Keshvi reality without having yet witnessed them by means of Keshv. The relation between Keshv and speculative, and I say certain realities, the, the relation between Keshv and speculative investigation can also obtain from the opposite starting point. The demonstrative proof corresponding to a Keshvi reality may be obtained, may also be obtained from the Keshv experience itself, insofar as the causal priority and substantion of multiplicities into unities encountered in some mystical experiences possess their analogues in the logical order after the mystic has returned to more or less familiar ordinary spatiotemporal conditions. But in any case, we'll keep um, discussion of that for next time in the Laitala. Um, thank you, Molana Sechi. Um, thank you, everyone. And uh, it was lovely to see you all. And I very much look forward to seeing you again. Um, and next time, uh, we will have the honor of um, uh, the presence of Molana, Dr. Cream. Um, I'm very, very much looking forward to it. Um, it's a great blessing. And, uh, and Allah bless you all. Please keep us in your prayers. Jazakallah khair. Molana, the man is the possibility that we could end with a prayer. Thank mm -hmm. you.